Hi there, I'm Anna. And I'm Anton. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Scalpel. As a doctor who's obviously worked in war-torn environments and other conflict-driven areas, um, how have you found the impacts of seeing that and dealing with that um, on your mental health? I never had a problem, but but uh, in Syria we had lots of stressful situations and in Syria we had lots of uh, people being very, very stressed. Um, we had one case where a woman stepped on a landmine and with her baby, and she was pregnant as well. The baby died pregnant. The, kid, the unborn died. It was horrible. She survived. But um, first of all, you usually it's a good team you're working with, and usually you, because you work so much together, you become close in a short time, which then allows you to debrief. And which then allows you to talk immediately afterwards, which was which is very good. Um, and because you don't do anything else, so uh, we were not allowed to leave that compound. So we were always together. What else are you going to do but talk about these things? So there's no there's no distractions like at home where I have to go for a dinner with this and then. So that that was one good thing that we could talk about it immediately. Um, and then when you come home, MSF, there, there's always a, a psychologist who contacts you. And then you can talk about these things. Or you can do it via telehealth. Immediately talk to some MSF person. So they take the debriefing process mm. pretty seriously. Mm. And you've got the mm. um, nationals and other mm. surgeons there. Mm. You're going to talk about those things. It's a good support network. Yes. Um, I I always found it it's difficult to find the right words. Um, I never found it super traumatizing, but there is some research that shows even when you think you are not traumatized, you do get some PTSD um, from what you see, but I have yet to know what it is. <laughs> um, it was such an... Uh, because we were working so much and we were such a good team, this takes a lot away from the stress, you know. You don't get time to reminisce and you don't get time to think about it too hard. Obviously mentioned that it's a very close-knit team that you work with for a period of time. When you come back to Australia, do you remain in contact with anyone mm. at all? Yeah. Mm. I'm a member of about 6,000 WhatsApp groups. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I never answer to WhatsApp because I switched off my notifications because it goes on all night otherwise because they're from all over the world of course you know with different day and night times yes you stay in contact it's also it's a it's a big world but it's a small community so i've been in my three missions i've been with uh, people uh, in gaza now that i met in the first mission in syria an anesthetist you know you always you, then you stay in contact you try to organize missions together because you like this guy blah 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 so that's uh, that's uh, it's a small community and are you able to achieve that through msf get the same 
groups coming back together. In um, you don't. You never get the same groups, but you get uh, you get uh, individuals that you then can organize that you maybe work together again. Okay, and it's obviously quite a multinational and culturally diverse team. How did you find navigating um, cultural and language barriers in the places that you have gone to? I learned all that in Mackay. Because in Mackay, I worked in a department where we didn't have a single Australian doctor. Everyone was from another place. So um, that was extremely good to learn and deal with different cultures and with different backgrounds and with different medical knowledge. Because these are three separate things, right? You have trainees who come from four different countries, but they also have four different levels of medical knowledge. Um, I did a really good course with Queensland Health about this. It's called Medical Leadership in Action. took a year and we devoted a quite big chunk of this to dealing with different cultures and different personalities. So I learned a lot there. Um, you need to stay open. You need to, you need to be humble. You need to be uh, interested. And then it usually works out fine. Is there any uh, language that you've picked up from doing MSF work? I did Arabic lessons twice a week for two months, and I can honestly say I only remember one word, I think. <laughs> it's so <laughs> difficult. <laughs> the teacher was so strict. Oh. <laughs> we never started. So. Um, so yeah, it's difficult. By no means you necessarily have to. Like I think a lot of people say MSF is a French organization. You have to learn French <clears> to do that. No, you don't have to learn French, but obviously if you can speak French, then you can go into French, predominantly French-speaking missions, which is many countries in Africa. Not West Africa, But yeah. all the Middle East are not French-speaking, so English is the, is the main language. And is that a requirement of the um, international crew that goes over, that they have English-speaking skills? Yeah, you sh yes, yes, because if you can only speak Spanish, it doesn't help you in, in an Arab country. I mean, if you can speak, because, because that the link, that the official language in the expat team, expats are older people like me who come from somewhere else. Um, the official language is English. You yeah, have to be okay. able to speak English. If you can speak Arabic, it's a bonus, obviously. Um, and I went this time with OCB, OCB, that's all, uh, Belgium, so MSF has different, I'm not even sure what OC stands for, organizational something, centers, um, Belgium and Paris and Amsterdam, so I went with, and, and, and Athens and so on, and I went with Belgium, so ma most people were from Belgium or from Italy. Okay. Um, so they spoke French, Italian, but we all spoke English. Okay. We might talk about how you actually got into humanitarian work in the first place where did the interest start always always wanted to do it from when i was a student um i saw a talk when i was a very very junior student and this was so fascinating that i thought that's what i want to do and i always had it in the back of my head but then you you you, you have to make a career you have to go through a training you have to move to Australia <laughs> so it takes a while but it was always a, this this talk was a very was a very um, strong experience because I still remember yeah so fast forward a few years you've now been an MSF for a 
a number of years doing a few missions. Um, how would you say that becoming an MSF doctor has shaped your worldview? Um, well, you become way more tolerant, I think. Um, you you see the two sides, right? Because you're usually, with orthopedic surgery, you're usually in a conflict situation. You're not in a natural disaster area because they usually don't need orthopedic surgeons acutely. Um, so for myself, I, I, I have met... First of all, it gives MSF is the sexiest medical travel agency because it it gets you to places where you normally don't get, and and it allows me to meet people I would normally not meet. So you become a bit more tolerant because you also learn that humanitarian medicine is never a solution. You can never provide a solution to anything, but you can provide help where there is no solution. So. I try to stay out of all these conflicts. I don't know who is right or wrong between Israelis and Palestinians. You know, this has been going on for such a long time. But you get to see both sides and you learn to understand both sides. And both sides are usually to some degree right and to some degree not right. Um, so I've become a bit more tolerant and I've, I've learned to be really interested in Middle Eastern culture because it's fascinating and I've never had any contact with them and now I've had three missions in Middle East. Overall, just thinking about the reasons for doing humanitarian medicine, what would you say are some good reasons for doing it and then what are some bad reasons for going into humanitarian medicine? Well, bad reasons are obviously... Um, if you just do it for the selfie opportunity, right? And if you do it for purely adventure, because it's no doubt it's also an adventure. I also do it because it is an adventure, but if that's the only reason, then that's the wrong, that's the wrong reason. Um, and we have heard... Um, the right reason, it's, it's, it's immediate meaningful medicine that's how i would describe it for myself of course as in every other big organization there is big problems and there's arguments and there's inefficiencies like also in our health system but it's it's a it's it's still more direct and more immediate it's immediate meaningful medicine that's how i would describe it and that's what interests me and i can um, leave something behind that has some value, whatever that is, a program, a research, a new technique. Um, and sometimes it's quite funny because in Syria I taught one of the surgeons a hand operation, which uh, we were actually not allowed to do because it was not immediately life-threatening. So I taught him how to deal with dupitrans contractures. And I showed him a very simple technique how to do it, and he's now the only surgeon in Syria who does that. And he has helped a lot of people with that, because he still sends me videos and he's, they're still in contact. So, but MSF, they nearly kicked me out because I was not allowed to do it. We dragged the patient in secretly and then we did this operation together, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, but then is the question, what is more meaningful? My spectacular life-saving 
operation on somebody who steps on a landmine, or I teach somebody an operation where he can help 20, 30, 50, 100 people every year, you know. So it's things like these that are very, very interesting. Um, and the more you do it, the more mind-boggling it also becomes, to be honest. Why you do it and what are you doing and who, who are you helping and blah. But it's still, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's good. Now, I think there's to a certain degree a view that some humanitarian organizations only rock up for the cameras. In your experience, how true would that be? Well, we know that from Haiti, right? There was this earthquake, but I can't remember when it was. Was it 2005 or 2010, I think? Um, and I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I have the numbers somewhere, but I think there were about 400 uh, humanitarian organizations there, and only 30 of them actually did something, right? All the others rocked up, did the selfie, did a spectacular operation and left. This is the worst. This is, Haiti was a complete failure of everything. This is the, people were flying in from all over the world wanting to help and not doing anything. The problem is also, um, even if you don't do anything there, even if you only do the selfie, you still use resources, you use accommodation, you use food, you use electricity, which the population needs, right? There was another famous thing in uh, India. There was an earthquake in 2005. Um, and right next to the city was a conference with 800 orthopedic surgeons. And they all rushed to help. And they did all these operations. Um, and then, because it was on the weekend, on Sunday night, they all left again. And all these patients were left with complications. Yeah. Right? So we know now you don't operate on people with closed fractures and... There's very strict rules in humanitarian medicine about that, right? that you don't do complicated operations when you can't follow them up. So that was also a huge disaster, actually. Well-meant is op often the opposite of well-done, unfortunately. In all your years of humanitarian work, what would you say has been the most stressful experience and what has been the most rewarding? The most rewarding was this case uh, <coughs> in Syria where we, where we managed to save the life of this woman who stepped on a landmine and her baby died and her unborn baby died. That was the most rewarding one. Not because it was a spectacular operation, but because the whole team stood together and we always stayed there overnight and we watched her and we nursed her and we fed her and everybody was peaching and everybody was she had like 15 operations or something like that so the whole team was was playing together and we got all very close about this so that was very 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 rewarding um, the most stressful I can't really can't really say it's always a bit stressful at the beginning because you are completely out of your comfort zone right so that is stressful you don't really know what's happening um the most stressful now is that I can't keep up with all the young uh, experts and their exercises. You know. <laughs> <laughs> they run much faster than I do. <laughs> what do you do? For exercise. Um, I always take a skipping rope when I, when I go on missions like this because you never know whether you can leave the compound or whether you can go somewhere to do exercise. And the skipping rope is the easiest uh, 
uh, workout that, that burns calories in a short time and you don't need a lot of space um, because push-ups are boring after a while. So is keeping, but it's less boring. <laughs> in terms of like training up to go into humanitarian medicine, I know you said there are a lot of South American doctors now doing it as a career and the MSF has a teaching hospital in South Africa. What pathways exist to go into it as a career sort of thing? Or in Australia, is it the case that like you have to become more established before you can take that time off and be able to do that? Well, in Australia, when you are, or not in Australia, when you are a surgeon, anywhere, when you are a surgeon, you need to be a specialist, you need to be certified in order to go with MSF. Um, and there's then also courses, there's not only the South African Academy, there's also a course in Germany, a surgical course where you learn humanitarian medicine and surgery. So you learn all the skills you need uh, basically with a scalpel and the forceps and that's all you have. And you can do a lot of things. Um, when you graduate, you can still join MSF, but then you can't join them as a specialist, but you can join them as a medical activity manager, um, hospital manager, things like this. So that's then also a career with MSF, even though you're not a specialist. Um, and then you go more the admin manager right. pathway if you are in australia if you are doing pediatrics and emergency medicine you can do msf during your training and it counts towards your training so that's actually pretty good i think a year so at least six months if not a year counts towards your training so you can already work as an ed uh, doctor or as a pediatrician while you're on a mission so if you're really interested, that's what I would... These are the options you have. If, if you were to specialize, what specialties do um, humanitarian medical officers do? What is MSF looking for? Um, well, they're looking for for doctors of all kinds, obviously. So that's, that's you, you, they always need obstetricians, gynecologists, um, surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, anesthetists are very, very important. Pediatricians, ED specialists. Um, I'm sure I've forgotten something. I apologize. Um, there are some missions, I believe, where they need ophthalmologists and uh, uh, mixed-fax surgeons as well. I do believe they have some specialized missions where they go in for a short time and do lots of operations. Um there's lots of GPs. I mean, you can work as a GP um, you, because the, the region of F, MSF is not surgery. It's it's going in a country and providing food and uh, vaccinations. And you can help with a vaccine. You can help a lot of people in a very short time. So that's actually super rewarding, right? Um, and for this, you, you need to be a GP. Psychiatrists and psychologists are very important. All the missions have psychiatry and psychology support um what sort of skills would you say are best suited to a career as an msf doctor well you need to be open you need to be a bit adventurous you need to be able to entertain yourself when you are in a tent in the middle of nowhere without electricity and no kindle 
battery charger. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you need to be flexible. That's, and that's how I prime myself for all these missions. I, I, I try to embrace everything. I, I say to myself, no matter what happens now, I'm not annoyed because sometimes you sit and wait. So in, we, we took us a week to go into Syria because we had we couldn't cross the border because it was MSF was not there officially, so we had to cross it illegally. The Turkish were shelling the border, so we had to wait, blah, blah, blah. So if you get angry and nervous about that, you're wrong. You just, you just embrace it, and there's always somebody to talk to, there's always something else to do, you wait. Well, perhaps if you were to ask, give some advice to your... Uh your former self, what kind of advice would you give? Um, yeah, work toward it, obviously. If, if, if any of these specialists interest you, then try to become one of these specialists, work towards it, stay open, read a lot about it. I never, I, I wanted to join them. That's one thing I, I, I should have done probably more. I never read a lot about them. I came, but then... It's sometimes also good to go into a situation completely unbiased. So you're not, you're not, you're not, uh, because obviously there's also politics within MSF and there's lots of books written about MSF. Um, read up on them so you have an idea. Choose the organization which you want to join. Um, some of them take volunteers, maybe, you know, so you get into contact. There's always, MSF sometimes looks for people to work in Sydney. There's always volunteers to work with, uh, you know, um, getting donations for MSF. And if you can't join them, then donate to them. That's uh, that's the gist of it. But um, I don't think you can plan a career like this. It's difficult, in at least in Australia or Europe. Because our career pathways are quite set and that they are quite organized, and um, it's getting in some countries more and more difficult to find a job. You know, so you need to get what you take, and you can't take two months off. Things like this. So I'm very privileged that I can do that, really. And with your choice um, of humanitarian organization being MSF, what were the factors that led to you? choosing MSF specifically over other organizations? Well, I have the sexiest t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think they're still the best organization um, because they do go in on a need basis. Um, they they don't care about politics. They don't care about... Um, um, they don't get funded by government. They only get funded by private donors, so they can go into way more places than, for example, the Red Cross can go, or the WHO. Not the WHO can go anywhere, but they don't do these things. The UN. I was also looking at the defense forces, but they obviously only go into very <laughs> certain places. So it's it's still the most versatile, the most broad organization. And a large organization. And it's well. massive. Yeah. yeah. So on the note of MSF's versatility um, and obviously involvement in disaster zones and conflict zones, um, we obviously know a lot about their res- emergency responses, um, but they are also strong advocates for the plight of populations in which they work. Um, how would you describe the advocacy carried out by yourself and MSF? 
Well, my advocacy now is that I do a lot of talks when I come back. So every time I come back from a mission, I usually do five, six, ten talks. Um, we talked to the donors. We did some webinars. Um, MSF organizes that I go to conferences and talk about uh, what I did and what I saw. Um, I've become very interested in the Palestinians, obviously, because when you're there for such a long time, you just get to know them really well. Um, and and MSF, right when I was there, they had a they had a um, an assessor that looked at what are they doing in Palestine, what what's happening to Gazans, what are the Israelis doing, what are the Israelis not doing. So they reassess it on a, on a, um, in certain intervals, and then they do speak out when they come to the end of their assessment, which is what MSF is famous for, which is what got them banned from Syria, which is why I had to go at night <laughs> secretly. <laughs> Didn't get a T-shirt. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> we were not allowed to wear a T-shirt. <laughs> But it's better to speak out than not to speak out, obviously. Yes, for mm. sure. Um, and so, yes, on the note of speaking out, um, what are some other current crises that you think the world should be talking more about right now? Well, the world is super busy with the Ukraine, and that's a, that's a really big thing. Um, and that's a very close-to-home thing, because we never had a war so close to in Europe since the Second World War, obviously. Once again, I can't say what exactly is happening and who can. It's very difficult to assess it. Um, Yemen is a huge problem. Um, that's forgotten now, really. Mm. And that's where MSF is as well. Um, Afghanistan, I don't know what's happening there because it's all a bit quiet, really. So these are the, these are in Syria. It's also quiet, but it's still simmering. Is that the word? Simmering, yeah. With regards to the fallout from some of these disasters, we obviously have a lot of refugees produced by them. Um, and coming to places like Australia, what advice would you give to doctors and surgeons in dealing with um, refugee crises and knowing that you're going to have people from different cultures and stuff come in? Well, whoever leaves their country, that's my firm belief and that's my private opinion. I'm not sure that's MSF official opinion or anybody's official opinion, but it's my private opinion. Whoever leaves their country because of a war situation or because of a volatile situation. They don't do this because they want to do it. There is huge stress behind it and there is huge angst and huge uh, uh, everything behind it. So when they come somewhere, it is our utmost duty to help them because we usually, in Europe, we are rich. We can afford it. We should help them. We had this in with Syria in 2015, um, when there's a lot of Syrian refugees coming to Europe. And it basically divided the population. It was a huge problem, because half of the population started giving language lessons, and the other half asked for a gun license. So it was a huge, huge issue. Mm. 
it's with the Ukraine the same now. So we get lots of Ukrainian refugees in, in Europe. I've just come back from Vienna, so you see them actually quite a lot. And it's different a little bit because Ukrainians are European, so they come with very expensive cars, right? But they are still refugees. They still need help whether they have a very expensive car or not. Right? So I think it's our duty. If they come to Australia, it's our duty to help them. It's our duty to make sure they can find a home here if that's their last station here. right? Make them feel welcome. I always had a problem with this integrating and uh, into society. I think integrating means we all are the same. Usually people who come from another culture are enriching. They contribute something else. That's actually quite interesting. Right? Um, from a surgical point of view, it's not different. <laughs> so they have the same breaks as everybody else. Um, but there is often or sometimes religious issues. So in Gaza, it was a huge problem to amputate something that needs to be amputated for religious reasons. So we struggled a lot with that. And in many Muslim countries, you can't, you're not allowed to amputate a limb, even though you should. But they rather die than to have it amputated. And that can be quite stressful as a surgeon and for the patient and for the relatives. Right. So we need to, there's a really good, um, program and app available it's called uh, culture gps and it's by some dutch sociologists who interviewed thousands of people in different countries and then uh, developed five criteria uh, relationship to money relationship to power relationship to superiors and you can look it up and you can look up your country's relationship to things and then dial in the other country's relationship and then you see where are different and that helps you understand where we may might be talking uh, over each other and where we have miscommunication because in India you have a much more um, completely different relationship to authority than we have in Australia and you can't have the same standards because you will have troubles so these things help um, and that's what I learned at this course in Queensland Health actually today is good good tools available and, and obviously you'd be doing the background reading on that going mm. into places like mm. syria and gaza mm. so you know about the mm. um, religious beliefs around yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get briefings over briefings yeah. over briefings as well okay yeah. but if you deal with refugees you don't get briefings i guess <laughs> you, get, you need to have it just in a way learn it yourself it generally. yeah yeah mm. perhaps um just focusing in on what we could be doing right now as medical students um what tips would you have for a medical student with an interest in humanitarian medicine? Join MSF on a volunteer basis. Um, go to talks. Um, try to get elective placements overseas. Mm. I think that's very important. Don't stay just here. Go somewhere. It's an adventure, you know, and you also get a holiday out of it much more important than uh, doing some boring placements here. <laughs> it has been difficult, I know, for the last two years because we couldn't travel, but hopefully that's over now. But that's what I would definitely uh, recommend, that you go somewhere not um, in a 
maybe middle or low income country and do a placement there if you want to do that. You have to choose it wisely because you shouldn't be in a situation where you are the medical student on your arrival and on the next day you are the consultant obstetrician yeah. and you have to deliver all the babies so you need to be careful what you do because that also happens. But uh, there's good placements. Uh, I'm sure that's easier, easy and easier to organize. Well, thank you for joining us today on Behind the Scalpel. We really appreciated your insights into working with MSF and your um, where you come from, your background and everything like that. So again, thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Scalpel. See you next time, either on our next episode or at one of Sergio's upcoming events.